Good morning. I want to thank you. Many of you are aware that this past week, um, I was in Pennsylvania for about half the week. My aunt um, was in the hospital. We realized it was not looking good. So I went down and spent a couple of nights with her. Um, and she passed away Tuesday morning. So our family in Pennsylvania is kind of working through quite a few things right now. And um, yeah, but I'm glad to be here. I'm glad that we have hope in the resurrection. I'm glad that we have a God who um, does what is best, even sometimes we can't always see that. And so I'm, I'm, very, I'm very thankful for that. This morning, what I'd like to do is for us to pick up our study of Revelation that we started two years ago and have been eking along a few chapters a year. And this month, we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 14. This is a key passage in Adventism. It is a, a, a very big message, very important in so many ways. And as we go into it, it is my desire that we will renew our commitment and recognize that we have a God who longs for us to be with him. That being said, um, I'd like to just um, have a quick word of prayer. Father, I kneel here recognizing that it is your Holy Spirit that we need this morning. We ask that you would speak to our hearts, speak to mine. I pray in your name, amen. Is it possible, if I could have the screen that I'm looking at, have the same thing that's on this one? I'm not quite sure. If not, I can turn around, but um, I know sometimes. I'd like to start out with a, and hold me to it, you ready? A review of Revelation in two minutes. All right? Could you open up to the book of Revelation chapter one, and we'll be looking at verse one. The purpose in the writing of Revelation is found in Revelation 1, verse 1. And we are just going to touch on it very briefly. It says, the revelation of whom? The revelation of whom? Jesus Christ. So the purpose of the book of Revelation is to reveal Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. So not only are we supposed to see Jesus, but we're supposed to reveal to us things which must shortly take place. How was it written? A style writing, it continues, it says, he sent and signified it or wrote it with symbols. That's what the word means. It's written, um, you see a stoplight and it's red. What are you supposed to do? It doesn't say stop, but you know that that symbol means stop. It's a similar concept when you're studying this, and that's the understanding of the Greek. All right. First half of Revelation, Revelation 1 through 3, is seven churches and a vision of Christ. Revelation chapter 4, verses 8 through 1, is seven seals in the throne room of God. And Revelation chapter 8, verse 2 verse through 11, it's the seven trumpets and the triumph of God's message. By and large, these three sections all cover the same amount of time. Similar time periods, let me put it that way. Um, all right, so far in the second half, we looked at last year. Revelation 2 is an overview of the great controversy. Revelation 13 shows who Satan's allies are in the great controversy and what their message is. 
That's where we finished last year. And we're going to be picking up today with Revelation 14, God's allies in the controversy and their message. And I put allies in quotation marks because we don't really question whether God needs allies or not. But there's a reason for it. All right, how was that? Two minutes? Good. Okay, let's go for it. We are going to jump into Revelation chapter 14 here. Uh, you recognize the, some of the people on the screen here. World War II was a time when allies became more visible. Uh, the allies were actually the, can we say the good side? It's always dangerous to say good and bad sides, right? But they, they were the side that were promoting freedom from what we could see and not extermination of people groups, right? So I would say that was good. But the allies had allies. In fact, that's why they're called the allies. Who were in the allies? World War II. Just a little bit of history. For those of you who don't like it, trust me, it won't last long. Great Britain was. Canada. Australia. Yes, part of France. New Zealand. Thank you very much, because that was more thorough than the list that I have. Okay? <laughs> much appreciated. That was the Allies. And they stuck together. And, and the Allies kind of joined when different friends of theirs got involved, right? So the British said, hey, we're going to stick up for the French? Or the French stick up for the British? Oh, and now I'm pushing the edges. Yes. That's true. So that's, that helps. And, and when the United States joined, when they got attacked, as soon as they joined, Hitler, they joined by declaring war on Japan, and then Hitler got frustrated, and he said, I'm going to declare war on you because you declare war on Japan, allies. It's, it's messy politically. I chose not to deal with current allies because there's so much feeling right now what's going on. But there's allies in our current world news today, am I right? There's all this idea of allies. Allies are sometimes helpful. Am I right? I tell you what, if there was not allies in World War II, I had one person put it this way, we'd all be speaking German. Um, I'm glad that there were allies in World War II. Nothing wrong with speaking German, by the way. I think it's fantastic. I wish I knew it. But our whole world would be at a different place. You know what? Um, does God need allies? I asked if he needs them. Yeah, yeah, we're kind of, okay. If God does have allies, and you notice how I'm doing this, who benefits from the alliance? <laughs> the allies do. Not God necessarily, but we're going to play with this. We're going to work on this as we go through because I think there's a very important picture as we go into this study. Revelation chapter 14. If you're there, Revelation 14. Christopher, thank you for reading verse 1. Um, this morning I said, son, the person who's reading scripture, i.e. your sister, is not here today. Could you fill in? He said, sure. And I gave him the verse that is the, the scripture text for next week. So um, thank you for switching on the fly. Appreciate it. Revelation chapter 14, and starting with verse 1. John says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb. 
standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. Yes. Verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, like the voice of a loud thunder. And I heard the voice of harpists playing their harps. Verse 3, They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Verse 4, These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. Verse 5, And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. As we go into our study today in Revelation chapter 14, we'll be looking at the first five verses Who are these people? We've been looking at chapter 12. We saw the great controversy laid out. We saw the dragon fighting against the woman. And there's this battle because Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the and dragon and his angels are cast out. And then the dragon gets mad and he throws water out of his mouth to chase down the woman. And the earth opens up and swallows up the water. I mean, incredible imagery, right? And then it says that there's this group, this remnant group, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. And then the next chapter, you see Satan standing, and then you see the sea beast, beast coming up out of the sea, right? You used to call it the leopard-like beast, but it was like a leopard, like a bear, like a lion. And it's, it does some really bad stuff. And then you see another one that comes up out of the earth, and it looks and acts like a lamb kind of to start with, but then it starts speaking like a dragon. And you see it's also persecuting. And you see this battle you see these enemies that are on Satan's side. Sea beast, earth beast. You see the weapons they're using. Mark of the beast, image of the beast. And you're wondering, okay, what's going to happen? Where does God's people fit in? And you come to Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. And you're told that there is a group of people standing with a lamb. In fact, the focus is not the group of people. The focus is the lamb. And then we learn more about this group of people as we go through. We're going to take some time. Quite frankly, um, when I used to study this group and these verses, I felt very much empty. I would read it and say, "Mm, well, I ain't never going to fit in that group. I might have even said it that way. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. But as we go through this study, there's a picture that has been developed. And I'd like to say I'm so thankful for a book called Prophets and Kings. We've been studying it in our prayer meeting, and it made a connection for who this group is and about this group that has really opened my eyes. And I'm going to share that with you as a, at our end today. The hope, the incredible hope that I think is here in Revelation 14. So... Looking at allies of the Lamb, I'd like to start out by describing their leader and their location. Then I will discuss briefly their identification, then their devotion, and then their character. Sounds like a class. I'll try not to make it too teachy, but let's go through it one at a time. First, their leader and their location. Who is the leader of this group that is presented in verses 1 through 5? 
What's the word that's used? A lamb, right? A lamb. Now, we've seen a lamb before in Revelation, yes? Uh, we saw a lamb pictured in Revelation chapter 5, a lamb as if it had been slain, right? And he was the one who was able to open up the seals so we could see the seven seals that would take place. And then we see his name again. Revelation chapter 7 says people are washed in the blood of the lamb. And then Revelation 12, 11 says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. So there's this, the lamb is coming on and on, but the last time we really saw him other than heard about him was in Revelation 5. Now we see him here. Um, by the way, he's not as a lamb slain anymore. Um, question. Those of you who know animals, if you like animals, help me out. If you have your enemies and your enemy animal, did you ever do this when you were a child? Maybe not. I did. In elementary school, I used to get in arguments with my friends about which of us was the best snake. I'm an eastern diamondback. Oh, yeah? I'm a cobra. Oh, yeah? I'm one of those ones in Australia that kill you in two minutes. You know, and we all pretended what we were with different kinds of snakes. Uh, you may not have done that. I did that growing up, okay? Maybe it's just boys. I don't know. But I'm questioning today, if you saw a lion and a leopard and a bear on this side of the stage and said, man, I'm going to pull out something to fight them, what animal would you pick to take out that lion and a leopard and a bear? Yeah, what animal would you pick? Thank you for clarifying animal because someone over here suggested a gun, but I'll, I'll stick with the animal. A Siberian tiger, that's right. What else would we pick? An elephant, ooh. A male elephant that's in a bad temper, right? Uh, or polar bear, yes? Ooh, well then I would want to start with that. I might even pick a wolverine for those of you who are from the North Midwest, right? These are the kind of things I would pick. But you know in the Bible, when it lists all the terrible beasts that we have to fight, it says, oh, by the way, here's the, here's the side that wins, and it puts a little lamb there. Lamb? You're trying to say that a lamb is more powerful than them? Yes. Because we have to understand the Bible shows us a way of living that's diametrically in opposition to what we think and believe today. We believe in our world today that what wins is the strongest, the smartest, and the most strategic, right? But in heaven's eyes, the one who wins is the one who's the most self-sacrificing and loving. But that doesn't make sense. But the law of the universe is based upon self-sacrificing love, and already we see this picture. Revelation 14 says the winners, the victory ones, are those who are standing with a lamb, not those who are standing with the dragon and the beast. It's good news. Very good news. If, uh, just a little thought here, side note, it's not part of my note, it's always dangerous to add it, but I'll add it anyhow. If we're acting like a lion, a dragon, or another wild beast hoping to get somewhere, you're not on the winning side. I can guarantee you that acting in a self-sacrificing, loving way feels like you're gonna get abused. It feels like you're gonna be a doormat and people are gonna step on you and hurt you. It's gonna feel like you're not gonna get where you wanna go in life. 
But the reality is the only way worth living is the law of the universe and it's self-sacrificing love. Now we have this lamb, not slain, standing here. And where is he standing? He's standing on Mount Zion. So let's just take a little bit of time to look at Mount Zion. Do you mind turning with me to Psalms chapter, I think uh, we'll start with 48. Psalm 48. And there is so many more on Mount Zion. Psalms chapter 48 and verse 2. And I like reading it in the King James, but I don't have a King James here, so I'm going to read it in New King James. There's a word that's used in the King James that's very interesting. It's called situation. Uh, But it says here in uh, New King James, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. If you read in Psalms 2, Isaiah 24, verse 23, Micah chapter 4, verse 7, in all of these places, Mount Zion is a place where God reigns. It's a place where he is king. So when I look at Mount Zion and I see the lamb standing on Mount Zion, I sense there's an issue of reigning here, kingship. But we will continue. There's something else about Mount Zion. Joel chapter 2 and verse 32. Now Joel's a little bit more fun to find, those of you who like uh, smaller books. I used to say, here to make it easier, Joel is before Amos. But that doesn't always help, right? Uh, it is after Hosea, which is after Daniel. Joel chapter 2 and verse 32. Joel chapter 2, verse 32. While you're turning there, in Micah chapter 4, verse 7, it talked about God reigning over his remnant in Mount Zion. I found that very interesting phrasing. Now in Joel chapter 2 verse 32, notice what it says. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we can say Amen. Amen. For in where? Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. They're very similar. In fact, they're often the same. There shall be deliverance as the Lord has said among the remnant whom the Lord calls. There will be deliverance among the remnant whom the Lord calls on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is a place of reigning. Mount Zion is a place of deliverance, and specifically in two of these verses, for the remnant. Now remember, we talked about Revelation being written in symbols. Almost all the symbols that are being used in the book of Revelation, not all, but most all, are used from the Old Testament. And so there's this imagery coming from the Old Testament. I used to think it was just a few interesting places, but it's throughout the book of Revelation. More than half of the verses are in part or whole from the Old Testament. So very interesting. There is more that talk about it being a place of deliverance. Zion is the place where God dwells and reigns. Is there a city in Revelation that is in opposition to the city of Zion, Babylon. We're not talking about Babylon today. I have a feeling that you might be hearing about Babylon a little bit next week, 
and definitely more the next week because Babylon is introduced in Revelation chapter 14. But before Babylon is introduced, God shows us what? Zion. Okay, so we're going to have Zion and Babylon. These are the two competing cities, or can I use the word Jerusalem? And Babylon are two competing cities in the book of Revelation. They come up here. Zion is the place where God reigns and where his followers are delivered. All right, let's go back to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14 and verse 1 continues. And with him, as with the Lamb, 144,000. Wow. 144,000. What's the last time we saw the 144,000? They were described in Revelation 7. Remember, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Uh, the number 12 is almost always connected with God's people. You have the 12 apostles. You have the 12 um, patriarchs, right? Thank you. You have these different men. A uh, thousand was used oftentimes as uh, a military unit, definitely used in Israeli thinking. So you look in the Old Testament, and it was kind of a militant group. However, 10 of these tribes aren't really available anymore. I'm trying to be uh, aware of that. They were dispersed after the Syrian captivity in 722 BC. Who's Israel today? Now, highly debated. Uh, we're not going to spend a whole lecture on it, but I'll simply quote a text from the Bible. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 and 29. The Bible says that those who are Abraham's seed are those who accept Christ. If you've accepted Christ as your personal Savior, you're Abraham's seed. You are a spiritual Israelite. In fact, Paul even goes so far as to say in Romans, we are Jews. We are spiritual Jews when we are followers of Jesus. So who is this Israel at the end of time, this 144,000? They are the spiritual Jews or spiritual a nation of God. And we could delve more into that. I like to um, notice what they have on their forehead. See, in Revelation chapter 7, they had something interesting on their forehead. Remember what it was? They had a seal, right? They had a mark, the mark of God in their forehead, the seal of God in their forehead. So the 144,000 have the seal of God in their forehead, the mark in their forehead. But here they don't have that. What do they have? Something different. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. Not the seal this time. Maybe it's part of the seal. It's connected with the seal. The father's name. Okay. What is God's name? He has many names. Yes. Exodus, chapter 34, verse 5 and 6. Exodus 34, verse 5 and 6. Moses wants to see God. Um, and God says, no one can see me. However, I'm going to proclaim my name before you. Exodus chapter 34, and starting with verse 5. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed. Who's proclaiming? The Lord is. Proclaim the name of the Lord. So here is God saying, here's my name. 
He's on top of the mountain. He wants to see God. God's not going to let him see him per se, but he's going to proclaim his name to him, right? And here's what he says. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. It continues on. God's name contains his character. And those of you who are familiar with naming people, it was always a big issue. We don't use it. Today we say, what name sounds pretty? Or what name sounds nice? Or how are we going to name our child? But it used to be that you named your child based upon their characteristics. Um, It was very big in Native American culture that they would do that. In many other cultures around the world, you would name a person based upon their characteristics. Um, However, um, and that God gives his character as his name. So when we're carrying God's name on our foreheads, it's assumed that we are like him. Simply put. Question for you. Um, Anyone here have something with their name on it? You have have your name on your Bible, okay? Anyone else have something with your name on it? Your license. (laughs) I could ask you for that as the illustration, but I'll let you keep it. Anyone else have something with their name on it? Oh, you have a notary seal. Okay. If something has your name on it, we understand that it belongs to somebody else. You. So when your name's on it, it belongs to you. That's simple, right? When God's name is on you, you belong to him. Nothing huge, nothing complicated, right? Um, and thankfully, you're not like a textbook from elementary school, which has a whole bunch of names on it, right, every year. This was mine from 1990. Ooh, did I say that out loud? No. We have one name, right? And we belong to him. Okay. Um, we've looked at leader and location. We've looked at identification. I forgot to change the slide. Here's the next one. We're going to be looking at devotion. I like that slide. I don't know if you do. Uh, I like the, the, the picture. Devotion. What is their devotion? I'm not going to be looking at verses 2 and 3. It's not that they're not important. I think they're highly important. But we're going to go on now to verse 4. Chapter 14 and verse 4. These are the ones who were not defiled with women for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the lamb. Not defiled with women. I remember taking Revelation in a high school class saying, what does this mean? Right? I couldn't figure it out. I wanted to understand. It's like, man, if I... uh, If I get married, that means I can't be part of the 144,000, right? I mean, these are all kinds of ideas. Um, Revelation is written in symbols. It was signified. And so as I look at these, it helps to understand a woman is a symbol of what in the Bible? 
a church. You find this in Jeremiah 6, 2, 2 Corinthians 11, 2, multiple other places. Throughout the Bible, this imagery is that the God's people are represented as a woman. Um, a pure woman would be a, what kind of church? Pure church. An impure woman would be a? A false church or impure church, right? I, you have those two. And we're going to see both of those women, right? In the book of Revelation. Okay? So the idea of defilement here is specifically in relationship to the false churches that are about to be described in the book called Babylon. There's more to it. I, I dove into something this morning. I got so excited and thought, you know what? I'm going to run that by a few theologians before I preach it. So every now and then you get thoughts that are a little wild, okay? But man, that's incredible. Who are we supposed to be? Who's supposed to be our spouse as Christians? Jesus Christ. Simple, cut, and dry. And so if you're going after someone else or with someone else, you aren't his. Does that make sense? That's the picture, if I can give you a broad picture here, and um, this group that were not defiled with women. Again, not speaking in a physical sense, I mean of a, a literal sense, but of a symbolic sense. I like this next one. And they do what? Where do they go? They go wherever the lamb goes, am I right? Um... um Have you ever followed the tracks of an animal? I know some of you have. I'm looking for some of you because I know you have, right? You have. That's right. Have you ever seen a group of... Uh... No? I lost my thought. Do lambs lead... What do lambs typically do? Follow. And yet, here's a group that follows a lamb. Would you think a person odd who is following a lamb? If it was a literal setting? Yes. Do you realize how God really turns our thinking on edge? He wants us to, to recognize, and if you follow a lamb, that means you feel like the lamb knows where it's going. Right? And that you would assume that the lamb is where you want to be. The Bible says in John chapter 10, verse 27, that they who are Christ know his voice and follow him. If you want to follow him, you know his voice. It also says this in John 12, 26, those who want to serve Christ follow him. Because where he is, his servants will be. Very simple. Um, next one, and this is the last one. First Peter chapter two, verse twenty-one. Let's turn there. First Peter chapter two, verse twenty-one. For to you, for to this you were called. <laughs> okay, so what is it? Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that. 2 verse 21, that you should what? Follow his steps. Um, and how can you follow in the steps of Jesus? So the last two months, 
we've been going, actually the first month of this year, we kind of delved with the concept of what does it mean to have a Christian life. We looked at the book of 1 John, and we learned in 1 John that the whole issue is loving God and loving others, yes? And we learned that that's an impossibility. You and I don't have what it takes to truly love as God wants us to love. So how do we love? How is it possible? How does God take the impossible and make it possible? It's that glove, isn't that right? That ugly, beat up, smelly glove. Once the hand goes in it, the glove can do anything the hand can do. But without the hand in it, the glove can't do anything. That's us. Without Christ in us, quite frankly, you can't do anything but droop around selfishly. But when Christ comes in you, you have the ability to do things that are mind-blowing because he's inside. And that's the same thing here. How can I follow Jesus and live like him? There's only one way, to have Christ in my life. So he's living the life. You know, there's a, it's the next one that really struggled, uh, I struggled with in Revelation chapter 14. This is a, our final section, and that is the character section. Um, my parents were, were tough on me as a kid growing up. Uh, I, I remember stealing something, and I remember being taken back to the store where I stole it, right? I remember lying and being taken to the person that I lied to and fixing it. And it just, right? I, I thank them today. Didn't like it then. But there was this character that was being built. And yet, when I would look at Revelation chapter 14 and verse 5, I would struggle with this. Here, this is a description of the 144,000. This is a description of their character. This is a description of the people who are with the Lamb. It says, and in their mouth was found what? No deceit. For they are what? <laughs> Without fault. Wow. Without fault. No deceit in their mouth without fault. I like to look at no deceit very quickly. First Peter, we were there before. Same exact passage. Uh, we should have stayed there. First Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Speaking of Jesus, okay, it says you need to, you know, he left us an example that we should follow in his steps. It says, who committed no sin, nor was what? Deceit found in his mouth. By the way, as soon as you would see the word found, and the word is found it's described in Revelation 14, verse 4 as well. And no deceit was found in them. That insinuates that someone's looking for it. Now, you know me, and you could say, yeah. Uh, hopefully, you could say, Chuck, he doesn't have deceit. He doesn't lie. But you're not looking. Does that make sense? If you start dredging up my life, ooh, I'd be in trouble. I know that. Don't answer for yourself, but I'm assuming if someone started dredging up your life, there might be some areas where you weren't completely directly on the dotted line. And so when I look at this, I'm like, ooh, have mercy. Not found. But we know with Jesus it wasn't found, right? Um, are you ready for another Old Testament book? Because remember, Revelation is using the Old Testament, especially the minor prophets, Zephaniah. Uh, someone want to help me out? Where is Zephaniah? What's the easy way to find it? 
Thank you so much. Close to Zechariah. That's exactly what I was hoping someone would say. It's, it's before Haggai. And after Habakkuk. So if you go to Matthew and you go back one book, you hit Malachi, then you hit Zechariah, and then two more books later, you're in Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 13. The Bible says the remnant, wait, 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 who? The remnant of Israel shall do what? And what's the next phrase? And speak no lies. And the next? Nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. Whoa. This is a description of God's remnant? I, I, I look at it and I say, okay, God, help me. Yes? Maybe that is your response too. In the book of Revelation, you know who deceit is connected with? Yeah. Deceit is connected with the earth beast who deserves, deceives the whole earth. It's connected with a false prophet who deceives. This is who deception is connected with. And you know what? In the New Jerusalem, Revelation chapter 20. One. Revelation chapter 21, verse 27 says this. Speaking of the New Jerusalem, Mount Zion, but there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. In the New Jerusalem, there are no liars. Nothing that causes a lie. Chapter 22. Chapter 22 and verse 15. Let's start with verse 14. Blessed are they, those who do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters. And you say, well, I'm not in that group. I'm not a dog. Okay, good. But let's look at this last one. Anyone who loves and practices what? A lie. Okay. Let's look at our final point. Revelation 14, verse 1. Don only said there was no deceit found in her mouth. Verse 4, sorry. It also says, verse 5, but they are without fault before the throne of God. We're coming up to a close here, but we're developing a thought. How did you describe the righteous in the seven churches? Two years ago, we looked at it. At the end of every church, blessed is he, he that overcomes. He that overcomes. He that overcomes. So those who are righteous are described as overcomers throughout the seven churches. Revelation 22, verse 11. I'm going to just rattle these off. In the judgment, we need to be righteous and we need to be holy. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. Revelation chapter 16 and verse 15. Watch, because God's coming as a thief. You need to keep your garments ready, right? Revelation chapter 15, verse 2. Those who don't receive the wrath of God are those who've had victory over both the beast and his mark. So they're overcomers. They're righteous. They're holy. 
They keep their garments clean. They have victory over the beast. They have victory over his mark. Revelation 12, 17 and 14, 12 both say this. They keep the commandments of God. It doesn't say they talk about the commandments of God. It says they keep the commandments of God. Okay. So how about that? Any here say you're signed up to be part of the 144,000? I look at it and say it's impossible. But the 144,000 are not standing alone on Mount Zion. Who are they with? They're with the Lamb. Wait a minute. Revelation 12, 11. And they overcame him, that is Satan, by the blood of the Lamb. What do you mean the blood of the lamb and by the word of his testimony? Revelation 7, verse 14. Ones who are victorious in the end of time, the ones who've washed their robes in what? The blood of the lamb. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. The 24 elders fall down and say, you have redeemed us by your blood. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. Can we turn there? So the whole book of Revelation starts with this uh, greeting from John, starting with verse four, and we are closing up. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. So you notice the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, right? The faithful witness the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us, what's the next phrase? From our sins by his blood. In his own blood, sorry. From our sins in his own blood. There's a book that I've been reading and very thankful to be reading called Prophets and Kings. And it connected the experience of the group in Revelation 14, the 144,000, with a man named Joshua. Joshua was a high priest who was part of the group that returned back from Babylon after the Babylonian captivity. Okay, so this is post-Babylon captivity. And he's there in Jerusalem. And Satan, in this vision that Zechariah sees, Zechariah 3 if you're turning there, Satan sees, I mean, Zechariah sees Satan standing by Joshua and, and, and accusing him. And Joshua, he has a very interesting picture. This is Joshua, uh, Zechariah 3. Joshua is dressed in dirty clothes. Okay, he has um, nothing. There, there's a, a picture Remember I told those of you who are prayer me, I told you there's a picture I don't like. It was the only picture I could find. So I'm just not using it. I'm doing something different. But um, here he is. He's dressed in dirty clothes, right? Filthy clothes, I think is how it's described in Zechariah 3. And he's standing there. Satan is by his side, and in front of him is God. Satan is by his side, and he's saying, look at him. He's messed up. And the Lord looks at Joshua, and then he looks at Satan. He says, Satan, the Lord rebuke you. 
beautiful picture. I'd like to read some thoughts. I cut this down dramatically. I'm trying to have only the key points. Here they are. Zechariah's vision of Joshua and the angel applies with peculiar force to the experience of God's people and the closing scenes of the great day of atonement. That's the time we're living in. So this, this, this vision of Joshua standing with filthy clothes on, with Satan accusing him, this applies to us today. Their only hope is that how often they came to church. No, no, is that what it said? Oh, you, how do you know? You, you don't see what I'm reading, do you? You know God better than that, right? Their only hope is in the mercy of their God. Their only defense will be prayer. They are fully conscious of the sinfulness of their lives. If you thought that those who lived at the end of time thought they were without sin, please know that that's not true. They are fully conscious of the sinfulness of their lives. They see their weaknesses and unworthiness, and they are ready to despair. If you felt this way, Joshua stands as an example of you. The tempter stands by to accuse them. As he stood by to resist Joshua, he points to their filthy garments, their defective characters. He endeavors to frighten them with the thought that their case is hopeless and that the stain of their defilement will never be washed away. Man, I hear it. Have you thought, I almost have my clothes clean, and then they get dirty again? Have you ever felt that way? And say, man, the defilement's never going to be gone. You can't use the word defilement. Uh, when I was in college, I lived with some friends of mine for about six months, Fred and Lori Dana. Some of you may know them from here. They're New Englanders. Um, and they had a Siberian Husky in their backyard. I had to get from the trail that went through the woods, I had to get a trail that would go past the Husky to get to the house. This was in Virginia, and Virginia's ground is red clay. And so, muddy foot Siberian Husky, and I have to get by her. And so, I everything I would do, I take something and throw it that direction and try to run this way. And then, um, the lady of the house would stand at the kitchen, kitchen window looking out, and she would just watch me for about five minutes trying to get past the dog. She said it was very amusing. I would run this direction, try to get her caught up, and then run this way. Because I knew if she caught up with me, invariably, one paw would get on my nice khakis. And it's not coming out. I tried so hard. But I, always, I, spent, I spent my years, six months there, and the year that followed it until the pants wore out with stains on my pants because of red clay from the feet of a dog. Couldn't get it out. But you know what? Sometimes that's what it feels like with us as Christians. We go over here and say, man, Satan, just let me know. I'm going to do a little trick on Satan. Have you ever tried that? I know he's going to try to get me here, so I'm going to do this to get him caught off, and then I'm going to run this way, and he'll let me go. The Siberian Husky, I got past her a few times. 
but you're probably not going to get past Satan. Do you understand what I'm saying? Unless you're walking with him 100%. But I'm not, it's not finished here. I, I, this, this is incredible. Satan has an accurate knowledge of the sins that he has tempted God's people to commit. You realize that? He has a track. Man, I got him there, got her there. And he urges his accusations against them. And here's the accusations that Satan makes. I'm not meaning to take too much time, but this is a beautiful passage. They profess to obey the law of God, but have they kept its precepts? Have they not been lovers of self more than lovers of God? Have not they placed their own interest above his service? Right now, some of you are saying, mm, I recognize those accusations, right? Have they not loved the things of the world? Look at the sins that mark their lives. Their selfishness, their malice, their hatred of one another. Justice demands that sentence be pronounced against them. There it is, Satan saying, God, I know what I tempted them with, and they did it. If you kick me out, <laughs> you've got to kick them out. That's the only fair thing to do. By the way, as a parent with three children, fairness is a big issue. Right? We must be fair. And Satan is here. It's got to be fair. You can't let them go. And then it says this. Jesus says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. I gave my life for those souls. They are graven upon the palms of my hands. They may have imperfections of character. They may have failed in their endeavors, but they have repented and I have forgiven and accepted them. Amen. And then this. At times the Lord may seem to have forgotten the perils of his church and the injury done her by her enemies. When I was younger, I had no concept of what it meant to think that God forgot me. But sometimes when you get older, you start wondering if God does. Yeah? Has God forgotten me? I mean, some of the stuff that's going on, this shouldn't have happened. But God has not forgotten. Nothing in this world is so dear to the heart of God as his church. He does not leave his people. Then it goes on and says this. As the people of God afflict their souls before him, pleading for purity of heart. You know, you can plead for purity of heart when you don't have it. I, that's one of the most simple statements. I hope you don't mind that. You can plead for purity of heart when you don't have it. Does it make sense? If you don't have purity of heart, you can plead for it. And then it says this. The command is given, take away the filthy garments. The spotless robe of Christ's righteousness is placed upon the tried, tempted, faithful children of God. And then this. These are they that stand upon Mount Zion with the Lamb, having the Father's name written in their foreheads. That's the description of those. Did you find yourself in that group? Tempted and tried. Yes? Often made to wonder. 
I love that song. Sometimes we look and say, God, why? It's battle after battle after battle. God, why these things? His response is, I haven't forgotten you. I know what you're going through. I'm here for you. My righteousness is enough. Trust me. Ask for it. I want to give it. What an awesome God we have. What an awesome God. 144,000. You know why they have no deceit in their mouth? Because God wiped it away and covered it with his truth. You know why they're without fault? Because God took away their fault and gave them his rightness. That's why. That's why they can stand there like that. They didn't stand there because they got it themselves. They stand there because God gave it to them. They sing a new song before the Lamb, the song which no man can learn save the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. These were redeemed from men, among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. I believe that God is longing for you and I to be on his side in the great controversy. He knows that he is in the right and that by joining with him, you and I will be victorious. We are the ones who benefit from this alliance. And he wants us to be on his side. Do you want him to be your savior? Do you want him to be your leader? Do you want to follow him? Do you want to allow him to be Lord of your life? I do. Could you pray with me? Father in heaven, we praise you that you provide and fulfill what we are not. And that, Father, as we plead, you have not forgotten us. Your ear is not heavy that it cannot hear. We ask, Father, that you would hear our voice, draw close to us, and, Father, fulfill your promise that was made to Joshua in our lives today, that we can stand right and pure, not because of us, but because of Jesus. We ask that you would be with us here, Father, if there's someone in this room maybe someone who's watching, who has not asked you in their life. I ask that you will give them the courage to do that now. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.